It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. In the spirit of ANU's motto, which is first to know the nature of things, we acknowledge the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea and waterways, which were never ceded. We pay our respects to their elders past and present and extend our respect to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples listening today. I asked the Prime Minister, how good is Australia? Please explain. I'm here to make a public statement. Look, I'm going to uh, shirt from Mr Putin. I am a fighter and not a fighter. I don't think, I know. I want to thank uh, that fellow down under Fair shake of the sauce bottle, mate. G'day there and welcome to Democracy Sausage again for another week. Comes to you each week, as you know, from the Australian National University. My name's Mark Kenny and with me, as usual, is Dr Maria Teflaga, political scientist at the School of Politics and International Relations, with which I'm also associated. That's her banging the mic, if you had just heard. How are Oops. you, Maria? I'm good, I'm good. You know, an unfortunate banging incident. Yeah, no, that can happen as long as there's no blood loss uh, because that uh, could slow down proceedings. Um, we're going to be talking about, you know, secrets today, which is uh, which is always good, isn't oh, it? I hope you're planning to tell me some good ones. <laughs> well, I don't know if I'll be telling you any good ones, but I reckon that our, our guests might. Professor John Blacksland is Professor of International Security and Intelligence Studies in the Coral Bell School of Asia-Pacific Affairs at ANU. And, John, you've been on the podcast before. Welcome back. Thank you, Mark. Good to be with you, Maria. Thank you. And Claire Bergen is a former Australian diplomat with all kinds of exotic postings under her belt. We were just talking before we came on air about one in, in Hungary and, uh, and and various other places, uh, an extremely storied career she has. She's also a former visiting fellow at ANU. And together, these two fantastic uh, scholars are authors of Revealing Secrets, an unofficial history of Australian signals intelligence and the advent of cyber. So... Congratulations. It's a fantastic book and uh, a very, very rewarding one to read. Thank you. Yeah, thanks very much, Mark. Um, look, I thought I might do, uh, you know, this is the, the journo in me, right? But I'm going to sort of give you a question without notice here. Um, <laughs> I want to start by just getting your reaction to, your general reaction to the events in the US in the last couple of days, the advent of a, of a former president uh, being indicted for taking state secrets w- with him out of out of office, and then just um, you know they turn up some stashed in a bathroom next to the toilet, uh, you know, um, mm. it's 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 an astonishing story. This, but I, I was just thinking that it's it's one of those stories which, because of the cavalcade of mm. outrages that has been represented by the advent of Trump generally, yeah. uh, Trumpism and everything that he's done and, 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 and the various, we know he's, he's um, on the hook for a whole range of other potential legal proceedings. Mm. And so it's easy to sort of see this in that pattern, but um, everything I've been reading and seeing from, from experts in the US uh, is making the point that this is of a whole different class. And of course, it is in a sense in your field, John, of, of security, of, of state secrets, of intelligence, mm. uh, of intelligence sharing. Uh, some of these secrets go to uh, doc- documents that relate to the Five Eyes and, and US allies. Therefore, it could have implications for our own. I just wondered yeah. what your thoughts are on it all. So um, I, I think it speaks to a couple of things. One is that uh, uh, President Trump is very keen to keep records that uh, he he probably should not have kept that were related to his own experience. And I think it speaks to his ego as well. Mm. I think that also speaks to um, the propensity to overclassify things. There's a lot of, an inordinate amount of classified information floating around the bureaucracy uh, Mm. in the United States, in Australia as well for that matter. And the problem is that there's an enormous reluctance to declassify. 
once it's been classified, uh, there's a reluctance for it to be declassified. It's actually hard to organise as well mm. because you need people who've got expertise in the field to know whether or not it's it's going to have enduring sensitivities. So, Although what we get from this is that um, Trump is saying, and, and this has been supported by a number of legal experts I've, I've, I've seen talking on you know, places like CNN and yeah. others, that the president himself, unfortunately they're all hymns so mm, far, mm. Um, can literally declassify things. The, the, the point Trump makes in, in, in one of the uh, recorded uh, conversations he's had is that he can't declassify them after he's been president, but mm. beforehand, mm. if the president determines a particular piece of information declassified and therefore releasable or shareable, he yeah. can do it. That's right. It's just but that he it didn't. Is, he just stole it. It's an item by item basis. Yeah, right. So he can do it on on the basis that that particular document is important for diplomacy and therefore needs to be made releasable for use in diplomacy, which right. is very different to you know the kind of secret dimension of statecraft, which we talk about in the book. You yeah. Know? So there is a dimension to statecraft which you keep away from sharing with people who are your interlocutors internationally, and then there are ones that you deliberately put in the domain where they can be shared. Right. That's the prerogative he had as president, which yeah. he didn't exercise that's, that's, that's over really, these documents. That's beautifully explained, actually, it, uh, because it, it explains not just the mechanism but the rationale yeah. for yeah. why you would do it. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. yeah, that's terrific. And it's interesting that the indictments don't go, Maria, to, um, funnily enough, to declassification. They don't talk about classified or declassified mm. documents. They mm. talk about defence secrets. You know, so that so that the, 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 it seems like this whole indictment, this whole series of charges, has been very, very carefully crafted so as to not overreach and mm. therefore give Trump's defence team a way to wriggle out of them. Yeah, that's right. It's sort of the Al Capone will get you on your taxes thing. One of the things I kind of, I guess, wanted to know from from you guys is. We live in a society that really values transparency. It's a, a core tenet of you know our liberal democracy. So. What is the case for secrecy then? We give we give some examples in the book of where secrecy isn't observed. Uh, for instance, pr protecting sources and methods and protecting people's lives. And the consequences of that are, are really terrible. So there are certain things, uh, undoubtedly, that have that have to be kept secret. We give the, there's that example of the Legato case in there, um, yeah, where shocking. where we're shocking yeah. people yeah. were tortured and killed as a result of people being Cavalier careless about That's information right. sharing. Yeah, yeah. 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 And yeah. what we're talking about, it's, it, I, I guess it's two sides of the same coin. If people just casually classify things because they can't be bothered thinking about whether this yeah. is important or not, it loses it loses its value. Yeah. It, 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 it becomes dangerous in that yeah. sense because then people aren't careful enough mm. when something is really important. It's like I was sitting next to a guy in court once uh, and, I, and I noticed on his... Um, you know, on his page, he had a whole statement there and he'd highlighted every single line. And page after page, every mm. single line had been highlighted. And I thought, yeah, it's kind of missing the point about what the highlight yeah, pens for. Right. Um, and yeah. I suppose you could do the same thing. States become so sort of instinctively secretive about what they know and the information they gather and the processes they're involved in that they classify everything. And, of course, we know there are very secretive societies, particularly undemocratic ones. Mm. It's always about getting the balance right. Mm. But even journalists who bang on all the time about the need for transparency, of course, have rely own, on their own secrecies. Their own secrets. Yeah, 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 absolutely. Right. You don't reveal your sources yeah. uh, if if that's if that's the agreement with that source. Uh, and journalists are prepared to, you know, be in contempt of court if necessary in order to protect those sources if they stay true to the code. So, yeah. uh, we all accept that sometimes information needs to move in ways that uh, is is um, uh, restricted uh, or which is uh, anonymous, you know, kept uh, the identity of the origin of the, of the information is, yeah. is kept secret. And the, in the book we talk about a couple of instances where politicians boast about how good their espionage services are and that the, the very act of boasting destroys mm. the source mm. yeah, uh, because it gives away that act, that special access to information that then generated an enormous problem, uh, particularly in the signals intelligence domain in the 1920s and 30s when the Russians, the Soviets, figured out that the Brits could uh, read their diplomatic cables mm. and they therefore completely 
transformed the way they protected their information, which made it devilishly difficult to actually read any more Soviet well, Im- impossible, right? cables. Th- this yeah. is one of the sort of great conundrums, isn't it? And we'll come back to that thing about boasting in a sec mm. too because that's interesting because uh, I, I, I suspect there's an element of that in Trump's behaviour as well. I mean, yeah. he's supposedly waving around mm. various bits of classified information. Look mm. what a fellow, look what access I've got, look who I am, look what I can do. Mm. Not going so well for him now. Uh, but this idea of of secrecy mm. or, and then of boasting about things of of how sorry good of, we are. Of, of, yeah of how good we are. You make the point in the book, both of you, about how keeping secret your success mm. is kind of vital to the yeah. to the process, which of course is a, makes for a bit of a conundrum. Of course, you know, if you're looking to sort of uh, sort of win your share of money in order to keep functioning properly, you need to be. Yeah. Yeah, the I secret of success in the espionage business is in keeping your successes secret. Precisely that's, that's as you put line. it. That's right, yeah. Um, and, and the point is that there are things that are core to protect mm. uh, and that if you if you blow them, you th- there are there are knock-on consequences that are that can be catastrophic and can actually see people die as a result yeah. of your mistakes, of your you know a, a apparent d- desire for openness and transparency. Well, we live in a world where uh, not everybody looks at it that way. This was the great. This was the great objection to the Edward Snowden mm, uh, dump, for mm, example, and 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 to to WikiLeaks as well. This idea that if if information is released in in a way that is just you know that was described as a sort of a data dump, yeah, um, without discretion and without care for the consequences that sources. That could be vital to Australia's oh. interests, for example, or America's interests could, uh, uh, that's could be right. exposed. That's right. But, you know, the, the, the flip side of what what John says is there's just been a, a, a big study in the United States about this and a book called, I think, I think The Cult of Secrecy, about this overclassification mm. and the... Mm. The, the worst form of it is is people who classify something as an exertion of power. Mm. Um, and that's, you know, that that's like really what Sir Humphrey Appleby said, you know, the Official Secrets Act is not to protect secrets but to protect officials because... <laughs> which is, which is, are, which is mm. part of the problem. But mm. I think there's a couple of angles here I think it's worth exploring. One is in the book by there's a, a guy called Herbert Yardley who wrote, the book, The American Black Chamber, he had been dismissed by Henry Stimson, who's the guy who said, gentlemen, don't read each other's mail, right? Mm. Um, he had been a cryptographer during the First World War and in the Anglo, in the Washington Treaty negotiations over naval powers in the 19 to early 1920s, uh, his Black Chamber, the Cabinet Noir, if you like, uh, of the taking off the French name for it, which is the Cryptological Secrets Hub, um, they had been listening into what the Japanese were thinking and, and the negotiation strategy, and they then used that to the America's advantage to uh, uh, extract greater concessions from the Japanese. And Herbert Yardley, having been dismissed by Stimson, gets ropeable and decides, well, I'm now penniless, I'm going to write a book about this. Very much, you know, there's echoes of Edward Snowden here. Mm. This guy reveals the dec- the, the secrets of American cryptology. Uh, the Japanese, the book's translated into Japanese and it incenses the Japanese mm. uh, because they realise they've been had yeah. uh, by this, you know, too clever by half American strategy that damages the Japan's interests. And of course, that echoes for a decade or more later into the Second World War when the Japanese feel a certain justification for their anger at the Americans for what's happened. There's another side to this too, which I think is really worth dwelling on. We talk about it in the book, and that is the the oversight and accountability aspects of what happens in the Australian context in particular. And this is something most Australians don't really realise. They hear about Snowden, they hear about WikiLeaks, they hear about what's happened in the US, but they don't really know Australia's circumstances. Mm, mm. And we are the beneficiaries of a number of reforms, one of which mm. was instigated by Gough Whitlam when he commissioned Robert Marsden Hope to conduct a Royal Commission on Intelligence and Security which generated enormous angst in the intelligence community, but enormous and incredibly consequential reforms. And then he, Bob Hawke, then a decade later, 
Commission hoped to revisit the question after the Fraser years to see whether or not the hope reforms from the first time around had been implemented properly. And he comes back and he takes it takes a second stab at it. He comes up with further reforms. So we have a number of mechanisms come in place. The Security Appeals Tribunal, which morphs into the Administrative Appeals Tribunal, the the the, the Inspector General of Intelligence and Security enduring powers of a Royal Commissioner to go into any of the agencies and probe and find out what were those last keystrokes you just typed in. And that has an incredible sobering effect on anybody in the community. They always feel like they've got Damocles sword hanging Mm. over their head. Mm. So anything you say or do inside that community, any kind of too clever by half manoeuvring can be explored by that enduring power of the Royal Commissioner. Now, John, you were just saying that uh, those royal commissions uh, created some some concern. I hope that someone in the newspapers back then you know, had the smarts to to run the headline "Hope Causes Angst," um, but uh, <laughs> perhaps not. Um, let's there, be- there were a lot of play on uh, puns on on Hope's appointment. For I, sure. I can imagine, yeah. yeah. But certainly, a, a an absolutely a giant name in this whole field. Mm, you often absolutely. hear I've heard it all, you know, for yeah. most of my life. I've you know from time to time heard references about. Those royal commissions and, yeah. and and the impact they had. Mm. Let's let's just go back to tours in a sense and talk about how this book came about mm. Um, mm. Uh, and 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 what its scope is. It started off as a as a kind of an official biography of yeah. of, of, so, of of Signals Intelligence or of Australian Signals Directorate. So Mike Burgess, the former Director General of AST, Australian Signals Directorate, uh, commissioned a history, and we won the contract right. to to write that history. And um, we had a team put together of researchers, mostly former practitioners and experts in various fields, to pull this project together. It was going to go to the present in two volumes. Um, and um, then there's a clause in the contract that said basically it could cancel it at any notice, which is what standard defense contracts have. And I thought, well, that's fine because Mike wants it and I'm happy, you know, mm. I'm confident mm. we can deliver. Yeah. But then, of course, there was a new director general. She had a change of heart. She didn't want to go to the present. She wanted it to end in the 1990s. And then she wanted Which to- Which is presumably, I guess we can all imagine why that was. I'm, I'm, I'm assuming here, but I imagine it was, you know, we, we don't want to talk too much about contemporaneous stuff for, for security reasons. <sighs> yeah, except it doesn't quite make sense in light of how willing they've been to talk about contemporary issues and mm. recent shows with Andrew Probin, for instance, on the ABC. <laughs> Indeed. Um, mm. So it's a, it, look, I actually don't quite make sense of it. I, I mean, you could, people could can theorise about what was going on there, but in the end, uh, uh, she wanted to change it again to give us no editorial license to right. have complete control. And I said, look, you know, I'm at ANU. Yeah, we don't do that. No, we don't do that. We no. don't do that. So you can either have me write it with the team the way it is, and you know, you'll get a product a bit like ASIO's product. It'll it'll gonna gonna have a few warts. In it, but mm. it'll be basically a fairly accurate account, and uh, that wasn't acceptable. So the contract was cancelled, unfortunately. But um, it, to the credit of our vice chancellor Brian Schmidt, when they mm. they ASD wanted the money back, and I, Brian said, "Look, uh, you can have the money back." Uh, that we haven't spent if you give John the intellectual property rights to what's already been drafted. And so they agreed. So we got the manuscript up to 1945. And I was pretty gutted by all of this, but Claire very kindly, she was a principal research assistant. She basically helped me, said, come on, John, pick yourself up. We can do this. Finish the story from unclassified means. I thought it was a really great story that that we already had, and uh, in in fact, it turned out really well because we were able to broaden it. We were able to write not just about ASD, but but about signals in the three services, yeah, and bring it up to the present day, which is what and talk about cyber. We wanted to do know? and talk yeah. about cyber mm. and and actually have some creative freedom. Mm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So in a sense, it becomes a, 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 a almost a more ambitious yeah. um, uh, project De- and, and and more complete. Yeah, mm. Mm. Um, signals intelligence. Let's. I mean, there are terms in in the book: um, uh, SIGINT, uh, COMINT, uh, EW, ELINT. L- mm. Let's go through a few of them, just to, to because I know there's a good glossary in the book. Yeah. Um, but just. Get to give our listeners a sense of, of what they are. And I mean, start off with uh, Claire I'll, with SIGINT. I'll, I'll start off with an example of SIGINT. Oh, yeah. Just mm. the, the, um, the, the former head of the, the Russian, Russia section in the CIA 
was commenting recently on the argy-bargy between the Russians and the Ukrainians about who was responsible for the dam disaster, you know, yeah. the, the collapse of the dam. And he said that his first port of call would, would definitely be SIGINT. And then... Just so a, they'd be looking for signs of, for any indications con- from signal traffic yes, and what it meant, because yes, yes. uh, that would be the sort of fingerprints almost of uh, of, of, of prior involvement. That's right, and yep. uh, and con- intercepts of conversations between people. And I noticed that another pub- publication, Politico, has reported that they have heard a conversation. I don't know whether this, I don't know how much credence to give this, but between two Russians that suggests that the the Russians did it and went too far or something like that. So that's... that's yeah, I believe that's what the Ukrainian government yes, has, has yes, released. Yes, but the, Rus- yeah. the, Russians, uh, the Russians, of course, say say something else and that they've got they've had indications that it's the Ukrainians. So mm-hmm. we, we still don't know. But... Um, but El- Elint, John? Well, there's... Sigint is... Uh, you know, there's various ways of looking at this. SIGINT is composed of COMMENT, Communications Intelligence, mm. and ELINT, or Electronic Intelligence. Oh, okay, right, yep. Communications Intelligence is the stuff where you actually record a conversation that's been communicated. That's an, uh, Unbeknownst to un, the, yeah, yeah. Eaves, it. So it's un, without permission mm, to have listened yeah. in, to have eavesdropped on that conversation, mm-hmm. transcribed it. Perhaps if it might be encrypted, may not necessarily be encrypted, but that the process of listening in, transcribing, translating, decrypting, and then reporting, that's mm-hmm. SIGINT, or the, that's the comment part of SIGINT. ELINT is, is really about radars. It's about okay. signatures, radio, and detection and ranging, uh, ranging of kind of what is it that's out there that's emanating uh, some kind of radio frequency that can then be detected through electronic intelligence, which is all part of signals intelligence writ large. Mm-hmm. And then electronic warfare is a military term for what's considered in, in all-encompassing approach to the use of the radio frequency spectrum in warfare. So that's for electronic uh, protection, electronic, uh, so listen to protect your own systems from interception, electronic attack, which is the ability to intercept or jam or destroy or interrupt somehow the, the SIGINT or the signals communication systems of your adversary. And so there's electronic support measures, and signals intelligence is usually kind of falls into that ESM part, electronic support measures, where you're not destroying, you're not protecting, you're listening. Right. Um, that's kind of the EP, electronic protection, electronic attack, electronic support measures, the three parts of electronic warfare. SIGINT is in there in the ESM space. So, so is ELINT basically you're looking for non-random patterns in large-scale radio data? Is that? Really, what it is, or it's certainly a large part of it. Yeah, that's yeah. right. Any kind of intelligible uh, emanations that uh, indicate what's out there. Uh, right. So in the in the in the case of the dams, where well, you know we might not be able to pick up a conversation between two Russian mm. soldiers mm. that you know may or may not exist, but we might notice there's an awful lot of buzz, chat, yeah, mm. um, or just people emanations, present, yep. mobile phone signals. Correct. Yeah, yeah. Right. Okay. And, so, and presumably that was uh, helpful in the downing of MH17, was it? Uh, absolutely. Mm. Yeah. yeah. It was critically important. Yeah. Um, so uh, in in the in the in the Second World War, we talked about. Um, uh, the, the way they would use uh, traffic analysis, and Australians were the best at it. We yeah. were the best at traffic analysis. Yeah, so yeah, right. so there's there's the there's the listening into the conversation. So you're recording, mm-hmm. you're picking up a few things. You think, where's it coming from? So mm-hmm. you're direction finding. So you might have a multiple sensors that can then triangulate the the source, the point of origin. So that gives you the location, and then you've got the volume, the frequency, the the the. The, so the, the intensity, cadence, yeah, yeah, the intensity of communications mm. that might point to uh, something imminent, and also then there's the the pre and post message mm. uh, kind of bit that might be not quite classified, or that might be simplified mm. in a simple simple classification system that are easily to easy to discern, such as a greeting, you know, uh, or uh, the source. It is from to message, mm. you know, mm. that kind of information at the start and end of a message are often fairly easy to discern. That was the traffic analysis. Nowadays, we'd call it metadata analysis, right? right? right. And that's kind of – that gives you the, the broad picture without knowing what's inside the message, without having decrypted.
encrypted it, you can actually get a fair amount of information. Yeah, you can work out there's an agent because there's a pattern occurring that's in right. this one location all the time, same pattern. Yeah, yeah. Exactly and, right. and it's the information that's most important in an emergency. So yeah. you may not have time to go through and work out exactly who's who's saying what, and but you you know that something big. It's, it's is the something, smoke, not the fire. Yeah, that's right. Um, or, and or, or there's something big's afoot. Even if you think about mm, 9/11, yeah. for example, or yeah. one of those sort of moments where you know what what is happening here? There's is a this lot an accident? Background or is this, noise. Yeah. yeah, that's right. So um, with the, the the Americans came to Australia with their IBM computers. And that was very helpful for the cryptology work, the un, the breaking of the codes, the unraveling of the codes, mm. and trying to read what the Japanese were saying. Um, they took that with them when they left. So after the war, we then were left with really good traffic analysts and, and linguists, but not great on the cryptology front. So the Brits then came in and helped us because yeah, they I, had I, an interest in 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 us developing a capability. I was I was just going to add that I I think that we were particularly good at the Brits comment on, on how we were particularly good at the traffic analysis and I think it, it's because we were resourceful mm. and being yes, able to manage manage um, with very few resources yep. even when there was nothing there mm. we don't we're, the um, the Australian signalers would actually make something of it and and yeah. work out they'd teach themselves how to do things. But it was all, it was a combination of art and science because mm. you you know the, the 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 maths of the cryptology of the unbreaking uh, the unraveling of the codes actually sometimes you required a kind of a certain je ne sais quoi a certain sixth sense mm. of of what was gonna what could it possibly be and this is something that comes out with Alan Turing's work with the bomb machine yeah. in the UK yeah. Yeah. this okay well what. What is it likely to start with, and what is that going to? If we, if we try that likely opening, what will that? What kind of thread will that help us unpick? Yeah, and that's kind of what happens with this this work on breaking the codes. I want to come back to the Enigma code, mm -hmm. code in a moment because that kind of raises another question which you've already made an oblique reference to. We'll just take a quick break now, uh, and we'll be back directly. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hi, I'm Sharon Bessel. Policy Forum Pod is the podcast for those who want to dig a little deeper into the policy challenges facing Australia and its region. Each week we bring together expert analysis to tackle the big issues facing our region and to propose policy solutions. It's insightful, it's positive and it's always fun. Policy Forum Pod is out every Friday. You can find it on iTunes, Spotify or wherever you get your pods. Or find us at policyforum.net slash podcasts. All right, welcome back. I'm with John Blacksland and Claire Bergen. Uh, we're talking about their book, Revealing Secrets, an unofficial history of the Australian signals, intelligence, and the advent of cyber. Um, it's a really fascinating discussion we're having here. Before uh, I go back into that, uh, let me just read out this uh, community service announcement, which may or may not interest you. I suspect it will if you are an ANU alumni. Um, are you interested in changing the world for the better? Nominations for the 2023 ANU Alumni Awards are now open. Nominate someone who has inspired you, or if you've got a great story to share of your own, nominate yourself. We'd love to hear it. The ANU Alumni Awards recognise and celebrate the diverse achievements of our alumni and volunteer community. ANU alumni are leaders in Australia and around the world, and this is a great opportunity to highlight their achievements. Category finalists are also invited to an awards presentation night in November. Search for ANU Alumni Awards or click the link in the show notes to nominate. Nominations close on Tuesday the 4th of July. So get into that if you can, and uh, that could be very, very rewarding, and we'd certainly like to uh, see many applications or recommendations. Now, we were talking before the break about we just sort of touched on the Enigma machine and mm. Alan Turing and so mm. forth. For me, it raises one of those other conundrums. We talked about how you can't boast about your successes. The other one is when you do break a code, you have to be really careful then what you do 
with that information because your, your enemy knowing that you've cracked their code is mm. going to change their behaviour pretty damn quickly, right? Absolutely. Well, there, there's a wonderful story about um, a woman, Berenice Wormald, who, who once scandalised beachgoers at Manly because she wore the first Australian two-piece swimsuit, <laughs> but she was she was the teletype operator in Townsville after the Japanese codes were broken and the Japanese Coral Sea fleet was sighted. Mm. And uh, she, she and other WAFs who were working there doing the same decrypting as she was weren't allowed out without a, an armed escort who, who had instructions to shoot them rather than let their charges fall into the hands of the Japanese. So it was very serious. Whether they would have actually done that or not, I'm not quite sure. But. Mm. And, and speaking of the Japanese and going to that question of, of signals uh, and, and, and reading the intelligence, mm. understanding it, is my understanding, at least from uh, from accounts I've seen of, uh, of the uh, attack on Pearl Harbor, is that the radar... The very early radar system that was set up in Hawaii actually detected something on the radar, but it was dismissed. Mm. Is that correct? So that's that's my understanding of it too. Mm. Uh, we, we talk about the, the the warnings of Pearl Harbor and the, and the mistakes and misunderstandings of that, and the exploitation of the good work of Eric Nave, the Australian cryptographer and a linguist, Japanese linguist, who was very instrumental in early breaking of Japanese naval codes in the lead up to the war and early in the war. Mm. Um, who after the war is roped into this saga where uh, the accusation is made that there's some kind of conspiracy and uh, Eric Nave's name is brought into it and, of course, he doesn't quite realise what's going on. He's getting a bit dottery at this stage. But the, the that kind of in, innuendo that somehow this is a, a plot that, mm. that, you know, that the Pearl Harbor was allowed to happen to bring the Americans into the war is, mm. it's mm. yeah, it's, 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 it's one of those conspiracy theories that refuses to die. And, and didn't didn't he go on Japanese TV, especially uh, specifically to deny to, it? To deny yeah. it, yeah, that's mm. right, because it was it was just made up. Mm. But the bottom line is that much like in this couple of instances later, and we talk about uh, Sigint and the East Timor saga and the Balabo Five. You know, uh, you know, there's a sense that well, Sigint is so good, they must have known in advance, right? And they must have been able to do something about it. So the fact that they didn't do something about it means that there is mm. a grand conspiracy. Yeah. Well, no. It's not that clever. It's mm. not that good, and it's not that prescient. People misread things. I mean, you also make the point about um, the Battle of Long Tan and yep. some skin mm. that indicated where the Viet Cong were, but this wasn't. Uh, it wasn't. Yeah, wasn't all that compelling to the brigade commander at the time. So this, the this other stuff thing, can make sense once something's happening. In so that's what that meant. Yeah, yeah. in mm. hindsight, yeah. the other thing was this guy. You know, he had been in the Second World War. He'd been a platoon commander. Well, in the Second World War, signals intelligence was retained at the highest levels. Only General Blamey and, and his inner circle were privy to this stuff. Right. Um, so a young you know, lieutenant in, in 1945 wouldn't have any idea of this stuff. Mm. So he then had spent his career not exposed to this, goes to command in Vietnam, and this boffin turns up telling him something that doesn't seem all that credible mm. and says, well, who the hell are you to mm. correct me? I'm the brigade commander. Yeah. You know, I'm the one with a lifelong experience of how to do this stuff. And little did he realise that he, he didn't know what he didn't know. Mm. Um, and this yeah. is, of course, part of the problem. Well, yeah, but it'd also be just a dimension of, of confirmation bias if you think about our public discussions of, of signals, intelligence. We, we tend to talk about celebrated cases, but, of course, there'd be thousands of times where it was a false alarm and nothing happened. And thank God, right? Well, that's mm, right. Well, yeah. this, this gets back to the Balabo yeah. Five, you know. Okay, so some, there are some indications that something's not great, you know, and they're, you know, the Balabo Five are actually saying, don't, don't go to Balabo, mm. not a great idea, right? Mm. So they go anyway, right? And, of course, Sigin is supposed to be able to tell you, don't do this. Well, they kind of were, everybody was saying, bad idea, right? Yeah. You didn't have to have the SIGINT to mm. know it wasn't a great idea. Uh, and the snippets of SIGINT that come out don't confirm clearly in time for this to be prevented. That's, I think, I think the, best, the best example of uh, what happens if you ignore SIGINT is the Battle of Jutland, right? Oh, yeah, yeah, that's right. Well, the story there is great. Yeah. Um, in the Battle of Jutland, you know, there's a, there's the, the, the Royal Navy SIGINT element um, is advising uh, the, 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 the Royal Navy on what to do. But so the, what year is this? This is 1917. Yeah. 
And there's a telltale sign the fleet, com- the German fleet commander's radio uh, pennant, if you like, is kept in harbour. Um, and they, they, the, the Sikintas know that that means it's, it's, that's not the main part of the fleet. That's just the pennant. And the, the, the naval fleet commander doesn't read that and doesn't listen to the Sikint advice. He says, ah, the fleet, the pennant's still in, in harbour. Therefore, this can't be the main fleet. Therefore, I'm good to go. And he doesn't realise that he's up against the whole German fleet. Um, <laughs> and so uh, he wasn't so paying it, attention. It, it pays to listen to them. Yeah. <laughs> it, it, it does pay to listen to the intelligence. And I wonder whether democracies are in a better place to, to do this than autocracies or dictatorships. Uh, if we think about the Second World War, mm. uh, think about Barbarossa, again, the same year as, as, as um, Pearl Harbor. Hitler decides to invade Russia. Yeah. Um, what could uh, go wrong? Yeah, well, exactly. What could go wrong? Um, there's there's a guy, I think Stashina, the, the German, uh, is a highly placed German uh, in the Nazi command mm. who actually was uh, aware of this. He was mm. uh, unsympathetic to the Nazis, yeah. got word to the Russians that yeah. uh, this massive build-up along the- It's all in, happening. Yeah, mm. is, is going to result in the, the uh, non-aggression pact no longer existing. Mm. Um, mm. And- uh, Stalin refuses to accept this intelligence. Can't he says, it. I've got my own intelligence. And won't be. Then, of course, Hitler does roll in there. Yeah. After he's being smashed and uh, the Stalingrad falls, mm. he's trying to uh, trying to work out what, what what's happened and starts blaming the intelligence for not telling him how many tanks and, and how, how large the yeah. Russian war machine actually was. Yeah. In both cases, you've got dictators who are just simply convinced of that they're, they're not accountable to no, anyone right no. they're not answerable and um, they're not they're not they're not for changing yeah but, yeah. but one big challenge for democracies at the moment uh, which is looming is uh, i don't i don't know if you were aware of the visit by the president of rand recently methaney yeah um he was talking about the threat of AI being used yes. to subvert de- democratic processes. Yeah, I did. I and heard it's, him it's talk a real, about it. Yeah. That's happening already, right? Yeah. Twitter yeah. bots and, and the like. Oh, look, yeah. I, I have a question, you know, which kind of goes to what you you were just sort of raising, right, which is around the, the contestability of advice. And yeah. um, I think it's fair to say that in, in Australia our conversation around foreign policy is, is pretty one-dimensional. We mm. don't really talk about it much as a society. It's not central to our debate. And, and I think the poor cousin of that, debate is is often this debate around the security services and even the defence force, which again seems to sort of be, a, broadly speaking, a pretty black and white set of conversations. So mm-hmm. I guess my, my question to you is you guys have studied our relationship with intelligence and its importance to statecraft for since our, our, our beginnings, right, or, and even previous to Federation. So what are we doing well in this debate and what could we do better? That's a good question. What are we doing? Well, I found that Andrew Proben program pretty interesting. You know, it was a series of snippets about a series of episodes of things that we were doing well, mm. like the young woman who'd brought back the the man who was going to go to Afghanistan and join the Taliban. There was mm. our success mm. with ISIS. There was the Bali bombing mm. and, and yeah, so on. Yeah, particularly interesting, yeah. But mm. what I would have been interested in hearing more of is less less of the tactics and more more of the strategic big picture overview of what's what's happening in the world which we got a little bit of from the the woman who'd been in charge of GCHQ who was also on that program mm. who the said who said mm. yes who said that um, what what the situation in Ukraine did was give us hope that cyber security was going to work because here, here were people with nothing. Every, Russia had expected an easy victory. Ukraine hasn't given it to them. And by being very nimble and being very clever with what they had and also getting lots of help from outside, including from ourselves, they were cybersecurity seemed to be coming out on top. Mm. And I'd be interested in more, more of a debate about our cyber, the new cyber strategy, for example. Yeah. Mm. We know yep. that there is one and they're collecting views yeah. and things. And we talk about it in the book to as, as yep. much as we can. Yep. Yeah. Uh, because, you know, one of the things we make the point of is that there's been a Copernican revolution in, in, the, in the space that ASD occupies. This body that started out in 1947 is very secretive. Even the name of the organisation, the Defence mm. Signals Bureau, it, it wasn't Telstra. 
mm. right? Uh, it was it was an eavesdropping unit that was trying to deflect attention from its purpose by having a. There's been a anonymous- bit of a history of that. You make the point in the book. A yeah. history of that of, of giving things kind of anodyne names or yeah. or def- you know names that sort of suggest something else. But today we have a very different situation. This kind of very kind of introverted, secretive body has taken on a function for society in cybersecurity that was unimaginable in the pre-digital era. Yeah, but that's so, because everyone is because we're all to, to, to quote Lenin, everyone's connected to everyone else. Yeah, yeah we're all connected. Yeah. Poorly quote him. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but the point is that we now need the, the, the kind of the computing hearth, if you like, of ASD um, has generated the Mike Burgesses of this world who have expertise who go and spend five years in Telstra, mm. helping Telstra protect themselves against relentless industrial scale cyber mm. attacks um, who are, you know, so that's, that's what's happening in ASD. So this secretive body that has gone through its own transformation from analog to digital is now actually generating a, 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 a crop of experts who can then help society protect themselves against what is really a relentless series of cyber attacks from mm. all sorts of state and non-state actors uh, who are you know looking to damage steel uh Corrupt uh, our, our our IT infrastructure, which you know, as we make the point in the book, we've gone from being a web enabled to web dependent to mm. web vulnerable society. Yeah, yeah, and that that transformation is mm. quite significant. And, and and does that explain the shift from our uh, security agents going from agencies going from being instinctively highly secretive to the point, as you say, of almost obscuring their existence, even yeah. to Feeling to like they, yeah, to having shop fronts and feeling like they need to actually explain what it is they do and the scale of the challenge that we face and how active they are in that process. Mm. Yes, they, they, those processes I, I suspect mirror each other. They do. They mirror each other absolutely. And we're seeing what we're seeing is, and this is why it's so great that we could, in this unofficial version, go up to the present with the advent mm. of cyber, mm. Mm. because it is it, it's that cyber domain that makes this organisation, this otherwise esoteric secret part of defence so critically important to the future of Australian society. Uh, we are, we're completely dependent on the web now. We, you know, we, you don't go and fill out forms anymore for things. You do things on an app on your phone, yeah. right? So the vulnerability that goes with that requires us all to have a greater sense of um, the, the, the this agency, the Australian uh, Cyber Security Centre, yeah, uh, being a service provider yeah. to the nation. Mm. Um, and that is essentially what's happened. So we now have their, their community outreach through the, cap, you know, the cyber security regional centres in capital cities, through the, through the education program, through the, you know, the eight things, the steps that they've got to, you know, that encourage everybody to do to update your program, change your mm. password, you know, stay, don't, Click on, you know, all sort of open links, links. Yeah. yeah, all this kind of stuff, which we've now become aware of. Um, a, a lot of that is we owe to the work of ASD and the Cybersecurity Centre. It, it's it's really important that people actually trust their agencies and don't feel about them like people people in East Germany felt about the Stasi. You know, they don't know what they're doing. Yeah, so, yeah. The, the standards are, are actually. This, the democratic value standards are well, actually that's very high. Be, that, and that, but that's the critical difference, of yeah. course, that uh, they weren't dealing, when they were dealing with the Stasi, they weren't dealing with the police force of a democratic government. They were no. dealing with a brutal autocratic, that's autocratic right. state. That's and right. what we need to un- Yeah, and what yeah. we need to understand as citizens always is that yeah. we have that level of accountability, that level of consistency mm. with our democratic rights. Yeah. And as you say, accountability, you know, you know as a, in, in my former role, uh, as I've said on this podcast before, Australian officialdom has been instinctively more secretive. Yeah, too, than, too secretive. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and we, we've often, if you, if, as I've, you know, I've travelled uh, with PMs around the world and mm. if, you, if you're in a place like Afghanistan or, 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 or one of these conflict zones, you would often find out more from... From, from officials of allies, yeah. Allies, yeah. yeah uh, you know, the US military would tell us what was going on, or the yeah. Canadians or the Brits. Yeah, yeah. We couldn't get that information out of our own government, our own military. 
No, no, it's really problematic the way we've been very, very secretive. And it's look, you know, this is it's a combination of the bureaucratic impulse to be protective, but also there's a political imperative there. That in mm. in 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 our you know, it's one of the flaws of our democracy, if you like. It's it uh, you are dependent on politicians being prepared to be vulnerable, yeah. and that's something that politicians instinctively don't want to be. Well, I mean, isn't part of it that? You know, the political discourse in this country since 9-11 has been structured around safety. You know, we'll, we'll, we will restrict people's abilities to do things in the name of being safe. And yeah. I think it really struck me the, the difference in discourse here, for example, compared to other places in the world when I was in Singapore. Yeah. And, um, you know, just at bus stations where, you know, children are, there are ads about terrorism and it's not, and it's like, be alert, be prepared. It's not if, but when. Right. Which is a completely mm. different mm. paradigm to mm. be thinking around some of these dimensions around the realities of the dangers we are facing. And I suppose my question is, we've got this instinct towards security. We do have segments of the population that don't think there is sufficient accountability of these mm. services. And we're not really talking about even the scope of the threat. Yep. So, you know, what can agencies do or what where should the conversation try to actually land? In you know, I know that's a, it's a really difficult question because there's probably no correct answer, but what could we do more of? Talking more about the scope of the threat, I think I think is a really is a really good idea. There's nothing mm. there's there's no downside to that. But one of the reasons I think we are uh, Australian bureaucracy does tend to be very careful is because of our past, actually, when mm. we had a reputation for being uh, not careful enough, and at one stage we were out of the intelligence loop, and I yeah. think that made us mm. doubly careful, and that's that has that has hung around, I believe, to a certain extent. Yeah, I yeah. think that's true. Mm. I also think it's probably that we don't have the sort of constitutionally enshrined rights and the cultural Correct. discourse around it so that there's that sort of public pushback in yeah. relation to those things. Part of the public pushback, I think, is also because we extrapolate from what's happening in the United yeah. States and yeah. we think it applies here. We do. And you see this discussion around the voice at the yeah. moment. People and, go and on about the Constitution as if it's the same as the yeah, US Yeah, and, and, and people don't realise the idiosyncrasies of Australia's political body. Mm. You know, yeah. We have a bicameral federal Washminster system. You know, it's yeah. not Washington, yeah. it's not Westminster. Yeah. It's actually quite unique. Yeah. The closest parallel is Canada, you know, as I've written about before. Yeah. Um, the other thing that I would stress is that most people don't realise what mechanisms we have. We have an in independent national security legislation monitor, yeah. the INSOL. Mm. We have the Inspector General of Intelligence and Security, the IGES, with the enduring powers of a royal commissioner with about 50 staff. Put in, formally, I don't know how many are actually filled at the moment. Then you've got the Parliamentary Joint Committee on Intelligence mm -hmm. and Security. You've got the Secretary's Committee on National Security. You've got a number of mechanisms of state that actually uh, provide checks and balances. Now, it's not perfect, and I think we probably have too many pieces of legislation, and there is some refinement required, and if anything, the Witness K type saga points to that. Yes, indeed. Uh, and the INSOM has pointed to that as well. But I think, by and large, most people People don't realise how robust our oversight mechanisms actually are. Oh, God, we've actually got a really neat diagram of it, mm. and we tick all mm. we tick a huge number of boxes. Mm. But just going back to your point about the scope of the threat and terrorism, actually, there are, there's a different way of looking at that too. Because in fact, our our CVE programs are very sophisticated. We, we've looked at this countering violent extremism, counter, countering violent extremism, and looking at terrorism generally. And we do. We may not talk about it like they do in Singapore, saying that you know the, the threat's about to get you or whatever. Yeah. But if you look at the metrics of what we've achieved in terms of counterterrorism, let's say not not having um, radicalisation going on in prisons, um, there are many many different metrics for measuring it. We're actually doing very well. So mm. because we we don't do the same as them, doesn't mean we're doing it worse. And to be fair to ASIO's annual threat annual annual threat assessment and its annual reports actually provide. A, a fair amount of detail of what's actually happening in terms of countering these measures, mm. these, these these threats. The problem we've got, though, is we've got to be really careful that we don't see our politicians becoming, in a sense, um, f sort of force multipliers of those arguments in terms of their political positioning. Yeah, that's right. Mm. I mean, Keating's point a few years ago, well, yeah. you know, Paul Keating makes some pretty um, explosive points from time mm. to time, and he, he, I remember the intervention he made a couple of years ago where he talked about I think he used the term nutters, which may not have helped, but he talked about um, 
how foreign pol- foreign strategic policy had fallen into the hands of um, of the in- of the security services of mm. the intelligence services mm. and the people who and I mean I understood that point I thought it made a lot of sense to me that you know you've got to get the balance right that there's always risks in foreign relations in 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 uh, the extent mm. of information sharing and trade deals with countries with whom you don't share the same values and a whole range of other things and you governments are there to weigh up those things. You've got your security experts, uh, strategic Mm. policy experts, intelligence officials and so forth to provide you with the risk scenario, with the dangers, and then you've got your other considerations and then our governments make the decision. What we don't want is our politicians handing over, as it were, strategic policy to... So this gets to a point that Alan Gingell wrote about, and which we talk about mm. briefly in the book, and there's a separation of policy and intelligence. Yeah. Mm. Uh, and this is this is in the bureaucracy. So you get you get intelligence advice, which is this is what we read as what the mm. threat is. Yeah. And then the policy people who are separate from them actually formulating policy options for government informed by this but not driven by this, yes. the, this intelligence threat. So this is why I have concerns about the nutters kind of observations because, um, you know, there are really good people in the policy space Mm. and Mm. the intelligence space doing their best they can to provide reasonable but sufficiently uh, robust advice to government on the scale of the threats that we face. And you can't pretend we don't face them. No. This is the thing. Um, And so to dismiss them in terms of nutters, I, I, I find that Unhelpful. Well, it, yeah, um, and and the truth is, if there are people to be blamed in such a dynamic, it is the politicians for surrender for placing mm, too yeah. much weight on one yeah. side rather than the other. Yeah. But but this is the thing, you know, we have a system where you know, and, and it's telling it's it reflects Justice Hope's model of separating policy advice from intelligence. And that was very clear so that a minister in a defence or home affairs or foreign affairs or prime minister will get the policy and they'll get the intelligence and they make the call. Yeah, they make yeah, the call. They if, make the call. If, if, that, if that happens, I mean, if the worst happens and people, there, there is politicisation of intelligence. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. But, we could talk about that for a whole happened, other podcast. But yes, frankly, but yeah. what happened with Iraq WMD yeah. didn't come, that wasn't, wasn't mainly from our intelligence no. agencies. It was intelligence that we took, but it was because politicians were, were – Elsewhere, yeah, yeah. were looking to do it, and they were looking thing. at unfiltered uh, intelligence as well, which was yeah. uh, you know raw data, which mm. was uh, a little bit uh, counterproductive. Yeah, yeah, becoming their own analysts, Rumsfeldian mm. yeah, uh, yeah. nightmare, uh, yeah. we might call it. Look, we're uh, we've run f- for longer than we should have, but it's just been such a fascinating discussion. I suspect we've been in what my friend Fred Smith would have called an ARE, an acronym-rich environment. <laughs> um, and uh, um, so, uh, you know, for those of you listening, I hope you've kept track of those things. But have a look at this book. It's excellent. It's put out by New South, correct? Yeah. And mm-hmm. you are talking at ANU in the next few days. So, um, we're, we're, no, we've, we've spoken at ANU. Uh, oh, okay, sorry. And, and we're, we're next doing one with uh, AAA Victoria. So when's that? Uh, 6th of July. Right, okay. In Melbourne. Good. All right. Well, people listening in Melbourne, uh, uh, you might want to um, find out where that's happening because um, mm. it's, this is just such a, a rich uh, area, a fantastic piece of work that you've done. Thank Thanks you, so Mark. much for coming Thanks, in and Maria. talking with us. Mm. Thanks, Maria. My pleasure. Mm. And uh, that's Democracy Sausage for this week. Thanks for being with us. Uh, you can contact us, of course, at uh, our email address, democracysausage at anu.edu.au. Uh, give us your feedback. You can, of course, uh, subscribe to this podcast and leave a review if you should wish. Only favourable ones, of course. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and that's it for now. Bye for now. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.